Welcome to the We Got Your Six podcast, sponsored by the 99 Legacy Fund and the West Point Class of 1999. Here we share our stories and exchange information to let each other know there's always a good enough reason to be here tomorrow. We want to remind you that you're not alone in your struggle. We got your six. Now here is your host and friend of the Class of 99, Philip Nathan. Yeah, well, Matt Kuntz, thank you so much for being here on the We Got Your Six podcast. Oh, thank, thank you so much for having me, Philip. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, man, I'm excited to talk to you. We've had a couple opportunities to connect on different calls, and um, I think we vibed pretty well on the last one, just talking about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And and you're obviously, you know, you're class of 99 graduate, and we're doing this on behalf of class of 99, um, at West point and just trying to be of service, just trying to continue to be of service to other people, sharing our stories of, you know, what we went through and, and what we learned from that. I was so wrong about a lot of things that I thought along the idea of depression and mental health and alcoholism and, and what it meant and what it meant about me and my definition of certain things. And all of that's changed and it's opened up so much more space for me to get help and also to be helpful to others. And I know that you have a similar path. So I, I'm really excited that you're joining us today and that you're going to be here to, to share your story with us. Oh, yeah. So, yeah it's so, so important. Yeah, dude. So, I mean, right away, I like to kind of talk to people, like if, if someone's listening and they haven't already met you, which hopefully they have. Right. But why let, let's just start from the beginning. Like, do you come from a military family? Like why'd you, how'd you wind up in the army in the first place? And, and even outside of that, why West Point? Yeah. So I, uh, I've never done anything super standard. Um, my, my goal was to kind of stay in my little hometown in, in Montana and, um, you know, coach football at the local college. And, um, then I got, in trouble a couple of times in an high school and i was like okay i i'm out I, i'm rolling i can't you know it's small towns are great until you get on the other side of them you know and um then i thought okay i'll join the army and I sat down to enlist uh for ranger battalion and my dad was like hey you know everybody in our family pretty much gets somebody pregnant at 19 and there's nothing in his track record that suggests he he's going to break any any mold there you know and and what if that happens and the recruiter was really honest and said um you know that that happened to me and it made it so then i was really hard for me because of life's circumstances to go be an officer to go do go back to school do a lot of those things so uh, West Point was recruiting me for wrestling at the time. And there'd been a few other guys in my school that I went. And uh, so that, that was a direction that uh, my parents strongly suggested after they were worried that I would just totally crash in the other direction in very obvious ways, you know? So uh, yeah, that, that I was like the last, person into our class uh you know i got i got approved right before our day and um you know it just wasn't really something i i dialed in 
before and it it it, it really worked out i'm glad that i made that journey out to new york and joined the class of 99 but you know there, there was nothing standard about it <laughs> so there what um what position did you play when you were playing football uh i played left guard for for football um rugby ended up being my po- position so so we had a really re- really small team when i was in high school and we just pulled everybody it was like a team of full of blocking fullbacks and and it ended up working but um i was really grateful to end up on the rugby team and i just got so many amazing friends through army rugby and still to this day um you know some of the people that have supported me the most throughout my life have been in that class at 99 rugby team yeah did you and i guess were you always a sports person like do you look back on that time as a kid and see like where does that still show up in your life today that competitive nature or just the i look at it i played sports and really it wasn't even necessarily about the competition it was about learning how to be really bad at something until you can get good at something or realize that there's other people that are like just have a different like you have to work towards getting on that team and if you want to start you can be on the team and not be a starter and just kind of like that mindset. Does that yeah. still ring out to you? It really helped me channel. Like I, I wasn't the happiest little kid and, and uh, you know, wrestling from five swim team at five football, all that stuff all the way through. It was really good for me. You know, in high school, I swam and wrestled at the same time which was like six hours of practice a day. And that was the highest my grade point ever was because my brain was calm, you know, like it was so exhausted that it was just like, hey, all of the extra stimuli that I need, I'm getting, you know? And um, I think it was really good for me. I've had to make sure and work with my competitiveness. You know, I think that, everybody that gets into West Point, everybody that goes to law school, you know, like it's, they're just gunners by definition, you know, and it's, it's good, but I need to make sure that I channel it and that it doesn't overtake me. You know, like the areas of law that I focused on, I was really thoughtful about making sure that I didn't just end up in a competition with the other side because i go pretty deep on that stuff so yeah did you ever get like sort of um self-critical about beating yourself up because you want to be so competitive or you want to be better or that internal voice yeah for for sure you know for for me a big part of things with west point was you know staying with my class you know staying with rest of the infantry officers as we move through. And um, I think that that's a huge, huge part of it for all of us, you know, that there's a don't fail, you know, and, and how you handle it, how you manage it. And, you know, I think it was a big part of I always live with depression. I've always had like, like the first lie that I told at West Point was on the initial screening have you ever thought about killing yourself? And 
I was like, oh, I can't tell a lie. So yes. And, and then, they, then they took me to the back of the auditorium and they say, if you say yes to this, you don't get to stay here. Are you sure that you mean yes? I'm like, oh, you mean that I mean no. Like so, so uh, like that from right away was stay with the class, stay with the group, you know, move forward and be the person that you know West Point and the Army expects you to be, and and that this nation deserves for its investment in you. So I think that whatever self-critical or like the drive that I had combined with that um you know it, it was an interesting combination and one that I, that i've kind of tried to help the military work with a, a little bit through legislation and other things to face the reality that we are all people and we have our you know in the same way that my ankle just was not good you know like like, like it wasn't wasn't going to do the things that the military wanted me to do you know, there's other parts of of our brain health or other things can really impact that so yeah, yeah i think that that was part of it i know when when i got hurt in ranger school it it was pretty clear that something was really, really wrong, you know, like, and it turned out I did have a little bit of a joint condition at the beginning and, you know, great place to find out that, that you have bad joints is ranger school, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. Tell that story. You mountain with a pack and a machine gun. You'll find it. You know? Yeah. Well, tell that story. I mean, so you're, you're at West point, you graduate and then what happens? Yeah, so so as an infantry officer, jump school, infantry officer, basic course, and then into ranger school, uh, we we my squad got recycled the first time, so so we kind of stayed there and pl- plugged through it, and I um, had, I had figured out this genius thing because because as I had realized, I'm bad at things, you know, I, I'm great at things and I'm bad at things. And I was really bad at land nav, you know, like just flat out couldn't find my way in any direction, but I could carry anything, you know, like I was was like a mule. And, um, and so I said, Oh, okay. I I have all these little guys running around that can find themselves anywhere. They're great at land nav. I'll just carry all of our squad stuff. And, and it worked flawlessly until it didn't and then uh, uh i was com- coming down mount delanaga and and it, you know i was carrying a machine gun and i i had a bunch of the rounds i mean like, like as much as we could stack on me we did and um you know, just blasted my ankle out and because of that kind of joint condition it didn't get better like it was supposed to, you know, like with Ehlers Danlos, which is the condition and not a mild form of it, but your stuff is just a little bit too stretchy to do how it's supposed to respond after a surgery and stuff. So it was, a, it was one of those things where you were on track and doing everything that you're supposed to, 
and then boom you're a failure <laughs> you know like like er everything you've worked for everything that you've pushed for your vision of yourself all of that is imploded in an instant and um yeah i'm certain my underlying depression was just waiting for that too you know it's just like hey uh, i've been driving you forward all the way through this we're kind of working on these things together but now that now that you're not going to be able to keep up with your classmates you're not going to be able to be the same kind of officer that you thought you were boom now you're not e even going to be an officer in the anymore you know you can't do what you need to do because surgery didn't work you know all all of that stuff was was really heavy for me um and i i started writing at the time and that was that was something that that i i played around with before but but i started writing my first book at the time and that was one way of managing, but as I got deeper and deeper into the actual reality of the separation for the military and what that meant for everything I've been working on, um, it wasn't enough, you know, and especially when I finished that book and I pulled my head up and um, it was some really dark, dark times. And I think because of that depression, because I was such a basket case over having everything crash, you know, like pl plenty of other relationships in my life weren't flowering at that time. You know, it's just, just like how that's a sad thing about, you know, that combination of depression and, uh, and a real life circumstance it is impactful i mean anybody would have been hurt by that anybody would have had their dreams crushed by that especially in the class of 99 you know we were we were going after it you know that was what we were doing and people were succeeding and then to be on the other side of that success line it was it was heavy and there was no way out of it and i think that was when that environmental circumstance hit my underlying depression and things got really hairy. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your stepbrother and then, you know, I want to talk about your experience in, in Hawaii and really kind of pull that thread so that anyone listening, you know, again, we, we want to talk about what it feels like when we're doing it, when we're thinking it and then what it's like afterwards, because sometimes we don't know what we don't know. Um, yeah, you know, so for, for me, the irrationality of suicide has become so important. And, and I counsel people, you know, I, I talk to people from around the country that lose loved ones and to help them understand that like functioning brain doesn't want to die. A working brain doesn't want to die. You know, like I, I, when I nearly took my life that day, you know, like I, I was overwhelmed. It was like your vision narrows and tightens and all you have is that psychological pain and you can't do anything else. And psychological pain 
is exactly the same neural circuits in your brain as physical pain. You know, it's no different in intensity than having your arm on fire. You know, it like it's overwhelming push and you can't go any further. And it's no different for a 20 year old in the army than somebody that's 75 and struggling from chronic pain. I mean, it's interesting. It's the same reasons. It's that overwhelming psychological pain. And, um, you know, that was one of the things was I, uh, if there had been rationality 30 miles away from amazing beaches, you know, like go to the beach. You've always enjoyed looking at pretty girls in bikinis. Today will be another one of those days when you like that, you know I mean? Like you like free diving was everything for me. So I, instead I was on this shady little cheap lawn chair furniture from Walmart and um, with a noose and there was nothing rational about it. You know, like, like there was just that overwhelming, I can't take this. And it's wild because you can see that a little bit through your lens, but then when you lose other loved ones, it's hard. Um, it's hard to see it. You, you end up blaming them and blaming yourself for what you didn't do. I mean, like no one in the world could have saved me that day. I, I walked out of my unit and said nothing intentional. You know, like, hey, everybody, like, like said all my goodbyes in like the same tone of voice, the same with everything as every other day, you know, but, but I was on a horrible trajectory. So, so that's part of the difficulty, I think, but, but it's important. Like when, when we're talking about our classmates or anybody else that we've lost, it's not rational. You know, it's not, not your brain doing its best. It's not your brain functioning at its best. I mean, my brain's amazing. I love it now, but man, when it gets dark, like, like yeah. it's deadly, you know? Yeah. That feeling of overwhelming, like impending doom, right? We're not sure exactly just that feeling of that sense of impending doom. It's all falling down and it's happening right now. It's, it's very suffocating and crushing and it's, you know, the mind just starts to race and it's on to the next, the next thought, the next thought, the next thought, and all of them are bad. And we're just intensifying it. We're awfulizing everything in our mind, but we don't even realize we're doing that. We think, you know, I remember when I was there, I, um, I felt like that was the rational choice. Like this is for the best of everyone. Like this is what I have to do because it will make things better. It, even in that moment, I was, I thought I was caring about other people. I didn't realize I was caring about what they thought about me, which, you know, is the self-centered nature lies to you. You know, you, that mental health condition puts a filter over your brain. And, it, and if the symptoms are cranking that much, you can't get out of it. I mean, like, like it is, it is just like trying to think your way out of a heart attack. You know, like, like I'm sorry, yeah. that's not how it works, you know? And it's funny because I'll, I'll have people on my phone line in suicidality. They won't tell me where they are. I have no way to get them. I 
think I'm just going to hear a gunshot on the other end of the line. And, you know, in rural Montana where there's nothing, even if I knew where they were, you know, like uh, there's nothing to stop them right then. And like, I'll just like, Hey, go take off all your clothes and jump in a snowbank. Yeah. And it's hilarious because it breaks that, it breaks that neural circuit that's firing, you know, just, it's just so bizarre. Yeah. It stops that amygdala hijack, you know, like, like, like for me, one of the things I do for my mental health is, uh, 30, no, I'm sorry. It's 10 backflips into really cold water. And I am really bad at backflips and it's just like, and horrendous belly flops into really cold water and uh you know it's like a like a seal in the circus you know because there, there's nothing there's nothing svelte or acrobatic about it but it breaks that cycle in my head you know and allows the clarity of reality to come back and like i know one of the guys that I've worked with jumped off the San Francisco bridge and survived. And that's what he said was that moment of clarity came back after he cleared the bridge. And that was when the filter of the depression and anxiety lifted and it, it was, was there. I mean, I, I, I one friend that died a treatment resistant depression and I had saved him at a whitewater riverboarding thing like six months beforehand maybe eight months beforehand and when I pulled him from that whitewater his clear blue eyes looked up at me and there was no doubt that he wanted to live with every ounce of his being, you know, it was like grabbing him and bring him into shore. And then we lost him to suicide eight months later. And it was just like, I saw how bad he wanted to live, but that depression overtook him. You know that, and for him, it was treatment resistant depression. It was as gnarly as it gets. Nothing was touching it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's intense. And then like, what's interesting, like you said, where you think it's all rational from your side. Like I didn't understand how irrational it was until after I lost my stepbrother when he came back from Iraq back in uh, March of 2007, we, we lost him and, um, just everything was pretty hard around that. Um, and, but I, I was in a NAMI family to family class. And that was when there was just something that clicked for me about the irrationality, you know, that brain based mental health condition really made it so hard to save them, you know, like there, there had to be real help. There had to be something else to break that circuit or, you know, I might be able to break it that day, but how to break it long-term, you know, so the PTS, 
PTS would lift and allow him to have a better life. It was that irrationality was not something that I got. I mean, even at the time, I was acting like I was working with somebody whose brain was functioning on all cylinders. And that was wrong. It was, it was unfair for him. It was unfair for me because it wasn't. He wasn't well, and he wasn't able to navigate his life in the way that he, he wanted to. You know, it was just too much pain. Yeah. Well, having that experience as well as your own, I mean, we, we've just talked a, a little bit about, you know, the amygdala hijack, how it's like so intense and it takes something to get us out of that. Um, usually it's external, right? And, and, and there are daily practices. Like I take cold showers and, you know, I was a fan of Wim Hof and it, it started as this thing, right? And it was something hard to do. And every morning I start my morning by doing something in the opposite of what I want to, what my comfort zone is or what I want to be doing. Cause at some point throughout the day, I'm going to have to do something I don't want to do and I'm training my brain. But what I didn't realize was that for those moments when I'm in that cold water, I'm centered, I'm present. It's, you can only do that in the present. You can only belly flop into cold water in the present. You can only take off all your clothes and jump out into the snow. And it brings you back into that. It takes a break from that amygdala hijack that's running. And uh, your brain can only focus on one thing at a time. And that is part of it is like, okay, my depression or my anxiety or however might like want to grab that focus. Like, Hey, it's mine. And it's hilarious because it's physical. It's biological. Like it's, yeah, it's something that, you know, the people, the neurosurgeons work on. Uh, and it's look, and it, it, it could be, I've told this story again for me, like I was ready to go, had everything all set up. And I had that one thought that, Hey, you know what? Today's Wednesday. And I don't want to, die without seeing the season finale of law and order SVU is that one trivial little thing. And I think that was that, I believe that higher power, that moment of grace, that space, that crack where the light can come through that, that one thing was like, all right, we're going to wait. I I never even saw the episode and and I couldn't even, I haven't watched it in years. It wasn't, you know, it turned out, but that was just that one thing. And I know that you have an experience too, where you were ready and you want to, and just, you know, and then there was this other opportunity for you where, you know, we kind of, dug into that when we were chatting the other day. I'd love to hear you tell that story. Yeah. Because so, I think it's important. Um, for for me, you know, my faith life has always been important. You know, I, I might not always be the best behaved Catholic, you know, of, of everybody. And, um, you know, I, there's a million different ways that I fall down. But it's always been important in that, like, personal relationship with the divine was you know it's just part of what what i did every day and and at that point when when i was that far down and that overwhelmed it it was it was bad but i was like hey i sat on the stairs and like god sorry you got five minutes (laughs) you know like you got five minutes or ten minutes i can't remember um turn this around because I can't, I can't do this anymore. You know, that overwhelming impact on my brain was just 
that train was on the tracks. I couldn't stop it. And um, so I was there on the chair and, you know, get the news all ready and er er everything on the hallway and the upstairs. And I remembered that, I guess I kind of had this insight that, hey, I'm going to be here for a while. It's the 29th of the month. Probably things aren't going to be very good for the, you know, for a couple of weeks. There's nobody here for me. Nobody, nobody really tracking me. And it's like, I got to pay my rent. And I had been looking for a check stub for like a week. I got USAA and it was down to my last set of checks. And I thought the checks were out and um, I went and looked at one more time and I found this one check in like the middle third of the checkbook and wrote it out and then went across the street to go drop off the rent. And there was a native Hawaiian man that was there and um, he had never wanted to talk to me before. I'd said hi a few things times, but you know, there, there really is a rift between the native Hawaiian community and kind of the white military folks that are there you know it, it's a colonialism rift it's it, it's real it's way way deeper than me and him you know uh and that day he was crying and i went up and asked him if he needed anything and that broke my attention and he ended up telling me the story about his, you know, divorcing the love of his life. And he talked for like an hour and a half and it was, it was killing him. You know, he had kids. She didn't want to be with him any, any, anymore. You know, it was, it was just a horrible, hard thing. And I talked with him for an hour and a half. And by that point, the focus had went somewhere else. The focus had been channeled into helping somebody and I came in, came back in, I said, not today, you know, uh, and, and I didn't, I didn't really alter anything. I kind of threw the, threw the rope up in the rafters. So I wasn't like walking around it, but helping people was a big part of how I fought my depression at that time. And, and I realized that I needed to make room for that. And like, and I had done it before. I think it's always been part of who I am, but I realized this has to be more structured because doing it only when it works for me isn't enough. And uh, so, so it's just everything to, to take that focus back from the depression on, you know, that focus in my brain and that power o over my brain to do the things that I want to do with it, to be there for the people that I want to be there for instead of having it narrow me, you know, because I, I believe now that my depression is a, is a gift. It's an amazing gift. I have this brain that can like, perseverate on things and dwell on things and like 
I can think of something a thousand more times than a normal person can, you know, like that, that is the, that is the gift that I have. And if I feed that brain things to work on, it's like a computer mining Bitcoin or something, you know, like, like something's going to pop out of it. Like, but I have to intentionally work on myself and work on my day and work on my family and like, make sure my sleep dialed in heck I, I i use this electric thing at night to help me calm my thoughts down a little bit so i can get to sleep better you know like that i i am able to say like i do really appreciate this brain that i have and, and it's generations of family have that and uh, i'm really at peace with it now and, and, and I use it every day. Yeah. I mean, what I hear you saying is that you recognize how your experience can benefit others. You can be of service to them, which fills you up and gives you that feeling of fulfillment. But not only that, you see how you can help others and teach them those simple practices. What I've found is that it's, it's, it's very simple, but not easy sometimes practices that we do to manage our mental health. We know that we're going to have these thoughts that pop up throughout the day. So we take time to do, we make sure we manage our sleep and we do certain morning routines and evening routines. And I've worked with others, um, a lot. And I know you're a big contributor to NAMI. Um, you know, but I'd like to, I'd like to hear from you. Like if someone is, is struggling and they're feeling like they're relating to some of the things we talked about of what it was like when those feelings were going on, when those emotions were in our head and those thoughts and those ideas, what would you say the first step for them should be? Like, what should they do? And, you know, really give us some ideas of what you thought about, what you thought about those ideas. And, you know, when people were saying you should get help, I was like, I don't need help. I'm going to figure this out. Like, you know, I thought a healthy adult was someone who solved all their own problems. Um, what's different about your mindset around how you see mental health? And what was those first couple of things that you did that looking back, you're really grateful for that without doing those, you wouldn't be able to be this person with this message that you have to help others. Yeah. Um, boy, it's, it's so hard. I, I do think to start out, you know, if you're, if you're really struggling with suicidality, call 988, you know, talk to somebody I've, I've talked, or, or if you're worried about someone call 988, I've, I've talked to them in the middle of saving a friend's life before and it was helpful you know it wasn't exactly what i was hoping to hear they didn't solve everything but you know there there are different varieties of mental health too like i don't want to pretend like it's all solvable you know like i, I have friends that they had something that was so impossible to treat that we were just lucky to have them for as long as we did, you know, there, there are varieties in how you treat this and varieties in what works for people. You know, like I, I've been fortunate with my depression, daily routine, staying away from substances, like, like my daily routine is just rock solid. I, I don't miss, I don't miss any, any of it every day. Like that's mandatory on both the morning side and the evening side. Um, how I structure my career and then, but, but I did, 
I think, you know, when I, I had talked to, I had spoken at a conference at a social worker conference and they gave me a chance to use, it was an alpha stem device, which almost nobody uses it. it I don't think it works for almost in, in anybody else, but it happened to be for, for my, for my de version of depression and insomnia really, really helped, you know, and, and it was something that I had to admit to my wife at the time that this is what I'm going to be doing now, you know, and, and hopefully everybody that loves me is cool with it. And they were really supportive, but that was something I was like, okay, I, if I'm going to be a father, if I'm going to be a husband, if I'm going to be a, you know, a great employee or a leader, I need to manage this stuff and I need to get help when I need it. Also, I need to give myself permission to realize that some things, sometimes it's going to be bad. You know, I'm going to have a bad week where I'm not going to be myself. My output is not going to be there. And I promise you, my work knows that my good weeks are worth it. You know, like, like my, my good weeks, my good months, I can do things that nobody else can do, but it comes with the down week. It comes with, you know, when, when the weather changes around here in the summertime or in the springtime, we lose a lot of people to suicide on the Rocky mountain front and, um, something about the bur barometer shift the like all all kinds of different things. Nobody really understands it, but that hits me every single spring. And my, my wife knows it's coming, you know, like my, like my work knows there's going to be the downtime, but guess what? I'll, I'll be back. And I just need to be patient with myself with those downtimes, you know, and if it starts getting too gnarly, you know, dial up some extra help. Check, you know, I mean, that for people that need medication or their type, or there's people that use T TMS or ketamine. I mean, wh whatever, whatever works for your type of brain health condition, go and get the care. Cause I guess the one thing that I'll say is, you know, I came to this through my own suicidality but also from losing my stepbrother i have a lot like when once you get in this community you're with so many fragile people that you lose them you lose some of them you can't save them all and i would just say please stay please keep going please do whatever you can because for those of us left behind it's so hard and we grow through it we grow around it but we never get over it you know and, and i guess that will be like do your best to try to head off those symptoms as they start getting deep and then when your loved ones are begging you to go get help do it for them not for yourself um 
Because I know sometimes that part of yourself that can reach out for help might not be functioning at that time. I know that, you know, like, like, but the part of yourself that can reach out and help your loved one, it still is. For me, the part of myself that was able to reach out and help that neighbor that was crying on the street still worked. And that part of myself saved my life, along with the entity that put it all in place, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, well, Matt, listen, I, I really appreciate you being here with us. I mean, I, you know, your story is uh, pretty powerful. I know you're, you're a published author. You're doing a lot of work, a lot of great work with, with NAMI and stuff now. But, um, you know, and I really appreciate you sharing that you wouldn't change anything about any part of your life because without it, you wouldn't be the person you are today. Because um, that's a, you know, that's a big deal. I, I look back on my own experience and I feel the same way. At the time, it was... It was hard and, and it felt like uh, the walls were closing in. But now I wouldn't change this. I'm, I'm proud of the person I am. Uh, I'm really grateful I had that experience because it taught me how to be this guy. You get past it and through it. And I mean, some people don't, but I know like I can done like three big bills in Congress and I've got two other ones and then a, like the dad and all that stuff and it's like man that brain can do that you know patents and all that but I have to manage the downside you know and and i think that that's the reality is that brain is just like any other part of our body like i i overstressed my ankles you know and i found out the hard way that hey that machine gun and carrying all that ammunition and do like over every day, that's a dumb idea, you know, <laughs> like that. Was, and, you know, I, I think that you got to give your brain the same respect as your ankles or your knees or your back or the rest of you, you know? Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you for listening to the We Got Your Six podcast, where we are on a mission to end veteran suicide. If you are struggling with thoughts of hopelessness or suicide, please reach out to family, friends, a classmate, or call or text the number 988 for immediate help. We are here for you, and we want you to be here with us tomorrow. If you have a story to share on this podcast, please email us at admin at 99legacyfund.org. The We Got Your Six podcast is a production of the West Point Class of 1999 and the 99 Legacy Fund. The podcast is hosted by Philip Nathram and produced by Brendan Wallace, with technical production by Scott Bronikowski. If you would like to make a tax-deductible donation towards the 99 Legacy Fund's mission to support the survivors of our fallen, please visit www.99legacyfund.org to donate, with duty in mind.